0: I want to begin this morning by reading from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. You can open your Bibles and just leave it there because I think it's a good text to have in front of us as we're talking about this topic. Paul writes to Timothy, "...remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. When we think of the task that preachers have in handling the Word of God, it ought to be a sobering thing. We have the responsibility to stand before God's people, to declare to them, thus says the Lord. Now that means that we've got to be able to know with confidence what what God has actually said. Any doubt cast upon our ability to know what God has truly said would be catastrophic to the task that God has called us to that Paul talks to Timothy about in Second Timothy. Yet this is happening at seminaries as they wrangle about the words of godless ideologies like critical theory and intersectionality. It will ruin our hearers. It's spreading like gangrene. Earlier this year in a chapel at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, President Danny Aiken said, and let me quote him exactly, he said, I've been teaching in either a Bible college or seminary now for over 30 years. When I teach hermeneutics, one of the things I point out is that none of us is a blank slate when it comes to interpreting the Bible. We all come to the Bible, he said, with a particular perspective, presuppositions... And a particular worldview. Now, at that point, Dr. Aiken he described his own worldview by invoking his identity as a white southern male. He said, I'll say something like this. Danny Aiken cannot help that he comes to the Bible as a white male married who comes from the deep south who has rock-solid convictions and commitments about the supernatural worldview, about inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, and is committed to Orthodox Christianity. Dr. Akin proceeded to contrast his white southern male approach to the Bible with approaches from those with a different worldview, particularly that of a lesbian woman. He said, quote, "...I suspect that I read the Bible differently... Then say, a lesbian woman of a different ethnicity who lives up in the Northwest and is committed to a pantheistic worldview way of thinking. He then declared none of that has anything to do with critical theory or intersectionality. It simply has to do with the recognition, he said, that when it comes to the interpretive process, yes, there's an author and a text, but there's also a reader, and readers come to the text with ways of already thinking. However, if you listened closely to Dr. Aiken's words, he mixes the influences of what he believes, that is, inerrancy in Orthodox Christianity, with his identity as a white Southern male, And in his contrasting example, he doesn't merely speak of the individual's pantheistic worldview, but he identifies the individual as a Northwestern woman of a different ethnicity. Dr. Aiken implies that there's a particular way that white Southern males read the Bible, as opposed to Northwestern black lesbians. And while he's correct that we all have biases that can influence us, the problem is he imports race and gender identities into the discussion of knowledge. I highly doubt that Dr. Aiken has been using that kind of identity language for the entire 30 years he's been teaching hermeneutics and talking about biases. So while he claims that critical theory and intersectionality aren't influencing him, the reality is that his choice of words are the essence of what's known as positionality, which is a fundamental tenet of intersectionality. Dr. James Lindsay writes about this, he, and I quote, "...positionality is the notion that personal values, views, and location in time and space influence how one understands the world." One's gender, race, class, and other aspects of identities act on the knowledge a person has about things. One's gender, race, class, other aspects. Male, white, southern. Whatever Dr. Aiken realizes or not, whether he realizes it or not, the language that he employs was spawned by critical theory and intersectionality advocates. The child, if you will, is known as standpoint epistemology. I'll be in from Tennessee, I had to look that up. And I'm not joking. That's the belief, uh, the standpoint of epistemology is the belief that knowledge is derived from the lived experience of different identity groups. Now, this brainchild was birthed from the mating of a radical feminist idea and critical race theory's interpretation of Michel Foucault's postmodern ideas about how dominant discourses shape truth. Objective knowledge, that is, truth for everyone, no matter what your identity, is something that really can never be obtained. So James Lindsay writes, This, in turn, renders objective truth unobtainable and ties knowledge to power, and both knowledge and power to the discourses that are believed to create, maintain, legitimize dominance and oppression within society. And out of all of that, standpoint epistemology emerged from radical feminism, which denies that traditional science, and that's going to be important because hermeneutics is a science, traditional science is objective. She denies that, or they deny that, and that it claims that research and theory has marginalized certain people groups. So life needs to be understood through the experience of the oppressed. Therefore, belonging to a marginalized group actually provides them with unique access to truth. Standpoint theory is the root of identity politics, which we are experiencing today so much in our culture which seeks to to deconstruct power structures, to rebuild them with power players who will do things the way they should function. This demands, they say, epistemic justice because oppressed groups can't function in freedom by systems created by white oppressors. Hence radical feminist Patricia Hill Collins writes, and I quote, My reading, she says, of standpoint theory Sees it as an interpretive framework dedicated to explicating how knowledge remains central to maintaining and, hear this, changing unjust systems of power. In other words, standpoint theory is intended to be used as a strategy to bring about change in systems. It's more than an analytical tool, it's a weapon in their arsenal to enforce the change they want. Patricia Collins goes on to say that black women are agents of knowledge. She writes, and again I quote, Living living life as an African-American woman is a necessary prerequisite for producing black feminist thought. African-American women who adhere to the idea that claims about black women must be substantiated by black women's sense of our own experiences and who anchor our knowledge claims in an Afrocentric epistemology have produced, she says, a rich tradition of black feminist thought. Simply put, to understand life of an African-American woman, you must start with an African-American woman's perspective. Their personal experiences are what provide them with a more authoritative, fuller picture, a more accurate view of reality. Now there's far more that could be said. And you've already heard much about uh, critical race theory and intersectionality. But I think that's enough with what you've already heard and what I just said. Enough information to raise alarm when you hear a president of a seminary inject the language of standpoint epistemology into a conversation about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. The heart of the practice of hermeneutics is near and dear to my heart, which is one of the reasons that I've committed myself to the last 10 years to training pastors in how to handle the Word of God accurately as Timothy is commanded by Paul to do, and to teach what uh, the hard work of exegetical work and the hermeneutical process I'm going to talk to you about in just a moment... But the heart of the practice of hermeneutics is to seek to arrive at the original meaning of the biblical text. We believe that the interpretation of Scripture is not based on the subjective experience of the reader, but the objective truth objective that truth that is rooted in the original author who is addressing the original audience. We believe that the Bible is truly the living Word of God. Paul declared to Timothy in that same book that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Peter explained that those who wrote the Scriptures were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we believe that the Bible is literally God speaking. That's That the Holy Spirit inspired certain men not to record their own experiences or their own thoughts, but to record the thoughts of God. The Bible is not a book about man and his encounters with God. It's a book about God and His redemptive plan for man. That the Holy Spirit inspired this is important. So what we have in our Bibles is a trustworthy record of what He has said. We must believe God has something to say. If man who is finite, who cannot even think the thoughts of God, there's no way that he could ever come to understand God's mind if it were not for the Spirit of God revealing to us His mind. And he's chosen to faithfully communicate that in Scripture. Now this makes Foucault's position that there is, no fun, there is no fundamental principles to which to discover truth, and that all that knowledge is, as he puts it, is local to the knower, that makes that view a clear and present danger to hermeneutics. And it is only further complicated to think that we can't fully understand the biblical text without the voices of people from today's cultural standpoints. Now in light of that, you would think that evangelicals would run from any connection to the worldly ideologies of intersectionality and standpoint epistemology. But instead of running from them, there appears to at the least be a cozying up to them and even embracing them. Consider the language of positionality used by a Southern Baptist professor from Anderson University in Anderson, South Carolina. On February 5th of this year, Dr. Luke Stamps tweeted, and I quote, The truth is objective, but our apprehension is always shaped by our subjectives. That's why it's important to hear from a multiplicity of perspectives, both ancient and modern, across time. Hear this. Space, gender, and ethnicity. This isn't postmodernism, he says. It's, listen, hermeneutical humility. Actually, Dr. Stamp's idea expressed in his tweet is textbook postmodern intersectionality. Even relabeling his position as hermeneutical humility is actually steeped in standpoint epistemology. You see, critical race theorist Jose Medina uses this exact concept when he calls for the need of epistemic humility, quote-unquote. He admits in that, he said, we need epistemic humility because he says we need to appreciate the other ways of knowing. And take note that Dr. Stamps, along with Dr. Aiken in his earlier quote, do the same thing. They utilize specific postmodern critical theory intersectionality language and then immediately deny any connection to the philosophical system. But there are many other examples of standpoint epistemology influencing evangelicals. It's spreading like gangrene. Prominent evangelical voices stress the importance of reading other ethnicities and genders in order to get a better understanding of Scripture's meaning. Earlier this year, Beth Moore tweeted about her approach to reading and Bible study. And I quote, she says, In my regular reading this year, to balance what I'd leaned toward for years, I concentrated on women authors and black men and women authors both in 2017 Jarvis Williams professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary he wrote an article entitled Intersection of Identity and Biblical Interpretation they're not hiding it he wrote quote I suggest bible readers do the following to help arrive at the biblical author's intent Rigorously study the Bible, this is his suggestion. Rigorously study the Bible with people from different races, ethnicities, social postures, and genders. He calls this, now hear it, hear this, he calls this interpretive humility. So you have epistemic humility hermeneutical humility, interpretive humility. See, one of the things that's done is they take language that we are rightly empathetic to and even convicted, yes, I should be humble, should I not? Humility is a a thing that every Christian should be, must be. It's It's a work of the Spirit in our life, and they take that and they weaponize it in order to push their agenda. Now, Someone might draw a wrong conclusion at this point about what I'm actually trying to say, and they might ask, Well, what's wrong, Tom, with reading commentaries by those who are non-white, non-male? My answer is there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I don't believe a certain ethnicity or gender holds the corner market on the ability to rightly interpret the Bible. The issue is whether one's ethnicity or gender contributes to or enhances our ability to rightly understand and interpret the Bible. As if you cannot know what God has said without those voices. You'll never know. You'll never really have a knowing what God has said if you don't have all of these ver- uh, other voices, and as if you are not humble unless you seek those voices out. Now, we don't think like this in other areas. When I boarded the airplane in Dallas to come to Tampa, I'm telling you, I did not practice aviation humility. I did not look to see if the pilots were black men or women when entering the plane. I guarantee you that you don't practice medical humility and select a doctor based on those categories. You want that person to know how to fly the plane. That's what you care about, how to perform the surgery. And their ethnicity and gender have no bearing on that. And as important as it is for a pilot to have proper knowledge to fly a plane or a surgeon to know how to rightly perform a surgery, it is far more critical that the biblical expositor be able to understand and communicate with confidence what the Bible is teaching. And after Paul calls Timothy to be diligent to present himself approved to God as a workman unashamed, there are a few things that would cause me to be more ashamed than... For God to hear me preach and then say, I never said what you just told everybody I said. That's not humility. Humility is making sure that everything you say from the pulpit is with confidence that God actually said it. Therefore, hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation, matters. It matters whether it's true or not that one has to have a lived experience to better understand or interpret what the Bible is teaching. It matters whether you need to read the Bible through a certain lens of ethnicity or gender in order to come to a fuller grasp of what Scripture is teaching. So if evangelicals start adopting the mindset of standpoint epistemology to the point that it becomes part and parcel to their vocabulary, how long will it be before they start applying these ideologies to their hermeneutical process? How long will it be until those teaching hermeneutics begin to claim a kind of hermeneutical Gnosticism that carries the implication that one's ethnicity or life experience can confer special knowledge or deeper insights for interpreting the Bible? Well, the answer is not long at all. In fact, it's already happening. It's not just a theory. It's a full-blown practice. I could point to many examples, but let me return to the campus of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where earlier this year Dr. Elizabeth Mburu, who is the first woman to gain a Ph.D. from Southeastern, spoke on the topic of African hermeneutics. Let me say up front that Dr. Mburu appears to be a sweet, wonderful, even godly woman in her attitudes, and demeanor, and she claims that the ultimate point of studying a biblical text is to come to understand the original point of the author. She also states, and I quote, that all conclusions regarding the text must be rooted in an understanding of the culture and worldview of the Bible. So what's wrong? Well, it's the 99% of her lecture other than that, in her book other than that, her hermeneutical method is faulty at best. Listen to how she uses the exact verbiage of standpoint epistemology. She declares, quote, People sometimes speak of hermeneutics as if it has principles that are set in stone. But is hermeneutics static or is it dynamic, she says, in the sense that it can change as methods of interpretation are adapted to different cultural contexts. Hermeneutics, she says, must be linked to a particular place. She goes on to say, if our hermeneutical models because this is the place she speaks of, if our hermeneutical models, models are all from the West, how can we derive practical applications in an African context? We need, she says, an African hermeneutic, one that raises questions that a hermeneutic from a different environment would not. So she proposes the following exegetical process, again in her, both in her book and her lecture. One, you begin with the African worldview, she says. Then you do a theological analysis, is step two. Then you go to the biblical text and do a literary analysis, step three, and then application. It's completely backwards. As Dr. Conrad Mbewe, Chancellor of African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia, remarked, about Dr. Mburu's approach when she stated this. He said, she confuses hermeneutics with application. You don't begin with the place you will apply the text, but the place where the text is written. The text had meaning in that world, he says. It's that meaning that you now apply to the place where you're teaching. So Dr. Mbewe, an African theologian himself, is exactly right. If we want to understand the meaning of the biblical text, we don't begin with our worldview. We won't get to the true meaning of the text by starting with our own perspective and frameworks. In fact, those will very often impede us from discovering the objective truth of of the passage. Do do people not understand, and do they not understand, that many of the problems that the church has had, even in the Western world, is because they were reading the text from a Western worldview, rather than the science of hermeneutics that is employing that, which is meant to help you travel through a process in order to discover the meaning of the biblical text. And in order to understand the original point of the author, remember that is the one led along by the Spirit to record the words of God, we must first travel through the context of His original audience. This process is called a historical, an historical grammatical hermeneutic. That we believe we will never rightly understand what the text means for us today until we first understand what it means to the original recipients. It can never mean what it never meant. So the exegete's traveling instructions for going from the ancient text to today is not to start where you are and go back to the text. It's not even to start at the text and go directly to today. You first must travel in a way that helps you understand what it meant to them then. If you're preaching through Corinthians, you need to travel through Corinth before I travel through Lindale where I live. We want to understand what it meant to the original recipients. So we examine the historical context. That's the story behind the text that I am u- reading or use, uh, preaching. This relates to either the circumstances or situation of the audience to whom it was written. Or it could relate to the culture or customs in relation to the era or, t- era or time it is written. We, th- we also examine the context of the passage itself. The words of the text I'm presently reading have meaning in relation to the context in which they appear. So I seek to understand how the author, as led by the Holy Spirit, is using the words by his words that is recorded, by examining the grammar of the passage itself with the context of the book as a whole. I'll even examine the context of other books that the author has written, if any, in order to better understand his meaning. Ultimately, I'll look at the context of the whole Bible itself. There might even be citations or allusions from other parts of Scripture that are embedded in my biblical text that will help me gain meaning of the text. But simply put, the goal is to study the text, to study the Word, to accurately handle the Word until you discover the meaning of the original author that was intended for the original audience. This is how one works to discover the objective truth that's being taught. It's not a Western hermeneutic. There's no such thing any more than there's a Southern hermeneutic or White hermeneutic or Northwestern hermeneutic. The objective truth is bound up in the point of the original author. And while many roads might lead you to the wrong destination, only one road can lead you to discover the objective truth. And that's the historical grammatical hermeneutic. Now, Tom Askell has said the following. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. He says if they're really bad ideas, the consequence can be catastrophic. Standpoint epistemology is a really bad idea. And Dr. Mburu, by the way, isn't the first person to implement the strategy of beginning with the African context in order to interpret the Bible. Now catch this. In her book, which was the basis of her lecture at Southeastern, in fact, if you watch it in her book, she essentially reads her book. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that's what she does. Word for word. And she writes in her book of the one who influenced her thinking about an African hermeneutic. And I quote, One Westerner who has thought deeply about these issues is Eugene Hillman. He proposes the best way to communicate Christian doctrine in Africa is to draw on aspects of African culture that facilitate our understanding of the Bible. Unquote. Now I'm stunned that Dr. Mburu did not raise any red flags about leaning on Hillman's approach to biblical interpretation. Because I want to share with you what his practice of an African hermeneutic did. It led him to argue that the problem of sexual morality among African Christians was due to forcing a Western world concept of monogamy upon African Christians. Hillman wrote in his book, Polygamy Reconsidered, which is a stunning title for a Christian, isn't it? That in African culture, polygamy was a quote-unquote, respected form of marriage. He argued that in Africa, polygamy, hear this, was the remedy for divorce and sexual promiscuity in their culture. Therefore, he argued that the biblical call for, a sexual, fidel- for sexual fidelity in marriage should be understood not from a Western context of monogamy, monogamy but an African context of polygamy. I call that a catastrophic consequence of a deeply flawed hermeneutic. Yet Dr. Mburu cites Hillman multiple times as a positive influence on her thinking. Now, although I I doubt Dr. Mburu embraces Hillman's position on polygamy, I'm not even trying to imply that, but what makes her think that her bad idea will be any less dangerous? As Dr. Mburu invites others to travel down her proposed hermeneutical road, What are the exegetical guardrails in her approach that will prevent her and her students from going over the same exegetical cliff as Hillman? She received her Ph.D. from Southeastern. She now serves as Associate Professor of New Testament at a university in Africa. And this hermeneutic will sadly probably spread like gangrene. Whatever good intentions she may have for the biblical author's point to be her final destination, they're hindered by her hermeneutical traveling directions. To get where you want to go, you need more than good intentions, you need good directions. If I ask someone in Texas how to get to Florida, I may have had good intentions to get there, but if they tell me to start driving west on I-20, I'm doomed to never arrive. But let me give an even more concerning example that also took place at Southeastern Seminary. On September 18, 2019, the Director of Hispanic Leadership Miguel Echevarria I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, hosted Dr. Danny Carroll, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College, to speak on the topic of Latino hermeneutics. He explicitly says that he intends to help them read the Bible, quote, through an immigration lens, unquote. Now this is Dr. Carroll's area of expertise. expertise. He's written a book entitled Christians at the Border... It was the basis for his lecture at Southwestern, or Southeastern, excuse me. In that book and his lecture at Southeastern, Dr. Carroll employs the tenets of standpoint epistemology. He writes, and I'm quoting verbatim, I commend an Hispanic approach for certain readings of the Old Testament. What I find necessary is the insistence of self-consciously reading the text from a particular place, unquote. He argues against, and I quote, an objective observer in favor of a perspectival commitment. He says we need those who interact with the text in a way that their identity and ethnicity in in their mind is what, from their perspectives, is what is engaging the text. Let me quote. The interpreter looks for material in the Bible and finds experiences that parallel in some degree to Hispanics. Their marginalization, fears, challenges, their longings. This orientation, hear this, he says this orientation can lead to fresh understandings and appropriations of the text. Here it is again. What we need is hermeneutical charity. Hear how the language, manipulative language is used in order to make you go, oh, I really can't question this or I'm not charitable. I'm not humble. This is Standpoint Epistemology 101 and Southeastern seems to know what they're getting. Listen to how they describe this lecture on their website. Quote, Dr. Carroll shares some of the richness that varying culture backgrounds bring to the church's biblical interpretation. Now, I don't have the time to share all the richness of biblical interpretation that Dr. Carroll brings in his lecture. I encourage you to go listen to it, but let me share one example. He explains in his lecture the story of Abram and Sarah through the lens, and this is a quote, through the lens of an Hispanic immigrant. And by the way, this is not even talked about, but the assumption is, is that every immigrant thinks alike. And that every person in the Old Testament thinks like every immigrant thinks today. It's incredible insight. Here's what he says, quote... Abram often gets criticized for presenting Sarai as his sister to the Egyptians. Abram's plan seems to compromise his moral obligation to his wife. Seems. And seems to put his faith in question. However, he says, reading this passage with a migration lens yields a different appreciation for what Abram and Sarah do. I'm still quoting. If they don't lie to get across the border, they starve. So Sarai is willing to put... I'm still quoting. So Sarai is willing to put herself in danger and enter Pharaoh's harem so they can all eat. Desperate people do desperate things to survive, he says. These are migrants who are desperate to eat. The only other choice is to go back into the desert and die." This is the same God that led him out of Ur and to the promised land, and He can't lead him in this situation except for lying and prostitution. Note, if you look in your Bibles, the text tells you none of that. But if you want the true meaning of the text, you have to put on Latino migrant lenses. In his book, he goes further. Listen to this. This is no passing comment, an accidental speaking. This is not a politician who misspoke. This is a theologian who has an agenda. Quote, Desperation yields audacious, even scandalous actions. If you have to lie or put people in danger to get across the border, then that is what must be done. Survival is the end game. Hear this. Too much is at stake to have reasoned moral discussion to decide between easy solutions. That's stunning. This is more than a misrepresentation of the text. It's a complete destruction of the text. He goes on to dismantle in his lecture the stories of Joseph and Ruth and Daniel in similar fashion. In his, in his book and, and when he was speaking there as well, when he was talking about Daniel's choice to not eat the king's food, he says that that was about negotiating spaces of an immigrant who had had everything taken away from him. And listen to this, food is central to how people live out who they are. I guess now we need culinary justice. You should read his book. It's clear that he has a bigger agenda in mind than getting the text right. What is apparent is that what he ultimately wants to use, the text, is to advance the woke ideology regarding immigration. The scientific method of a literal grammatical hermeneutic won't get Dr. Carroll there. Because the, the proper hermeneutic seeks to see the text as it is, therefore he needs a different hermeneutic that will work to bring about a certain desired result. You heard Michael Fallon talk about this kind of concept Thursday night. So it really should come to no surprise that one of the endorsers of his book is none other than Jim Wallace, president and founder of Sojourners, a founder of the Evangelical Immigration Table that pushes for open border immigration policy in our country. Their method functions to replace the objective truth of God's voice as revealed in Scripture with the subjective reality of intersectionality in order to advance the woke agenda that is not exegetic or excuse me that is not hermeneutical humility it's hermeneutical hubris now some will push back and argue but isn't it common for seminaries to have phd lectures that allow for pushback and critical thinking this is the kind of response i got from leaders at southeastern when i questioned these methods but this wasn't about critical education it was about critical theory and indoctrination whether intentional or not Dr. Carroll's lecture was followed by a panel discussion that included four Southeastern faculty seminaries. And the members of that panel gave a full-throated endorsement of everything Dr. Carroll said. The panel was called Cultural Diversity and Hermeneutics. They're not hiding it. Roger Locke on that particular panel talked about social justice and said, and I'm quoting, once you put on the lenses, you see it all over the place in the Bible. Well, he's right about that. He went on to agree with the need for other ethnicities to help you see things you wouldn't see otherwise. And I quote, We have to study the Scriptures in community so we can see the things we wouldn't normally see if left to ourselves. Dr. Walter Strickland, both of these individuals, professors at Southeastern. And he said, and I quote, People from other cultural backgrounds help fill out for me my understanding of what's going on in the Bible. He explained how he never understood the meaning of the prodigal son story until someone from Japan explained it to him from their ethnic culture. The problem is not whether someone from Japan can practice the historical biblical hermeneutic, but it is whether the person from Japan can use their culture and read it through that, through that lens on the text to understand it. Dr. Strickland is saying essentially that he could never have understood the meaning simply from a historical grammatical hermeneutic. Let me quickly illustrate a glaring flaw in the standpoint approach. It comes from the writings of Dr. M. Guru and Dr. Carroll. It's interesting because each of them take Old Testament stories to apply the African hermeneutic and the Hispanic hermeneutic. Are you ready? And so they use the, the story of Naomi and Ruth and they read it through their perspective lenses. Dr. Carroll reads the story of Naomi and Ruth in, in this way with an Hispanic migrant lens. He says Naomi's actions, which he mainly reads in what she doesn't say, he says she doesn't say anything here. What can it mean? I'll tell you what it can mean. God didn't care to reveal to us what she thought or said. Because it's unimportant to his point. But he says we need to figure that out. So through the Hispanic migrant lens, he says that Naomi's actions, especially her not communicating at certain times, indicate distrust of Ruth and lack of acceptance because she's an immigrant. Naomi, quote, was embarrassed to have a Moabite daughter-in-law. On the other hand, Dr. Mburu says the African hermeneutic, now get this, shows Naomi's deep love for Ruth. <laughs> now we're in trouble. She writes... Modern African readers are not surprised to witness the close relationship in Naomi and Ruth. In fact, in many societies in East Africa, a married woman is considered to have left her birth family and become a member of her husband's family. So I ask, which special ethnic knowledge do I accept to understand the meaning of the story of Ruth? They can't both be correct, right? Well... In a postmodern world, they can because there's no objective truth, only subjective realities based upon your standpoint of the world. And it's whatever you need the text to do in the moment. At the end of the day, in the woke hermeneutic world, the Scriptures are little more than Plato in the hands of the interpreter. And the Word of God can be molded into whatever social justice figure you need or to fit whatever issue for today. Do you see the damage this kind of thinking does to the Bible? Their view is irreconcilable even with their own perspectives. Do you see how dangerous this is as Southeastern Seminary sends out pastors into churches with this kind of hermeneutical approach? Are these the men that Dr. Aiken? That the trustees of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary want to send into SBC pulpits around the world? Is this the view that we want the first woman to receive a PhD and go to Africa and be a part of a seminary? Is this the view we want her exporting to the world? This is no mere academic discussion about philosophical approaches. This has real-life consequences. That's exactly what Paul was telling Timothy. How you handle the Word word of God, the Word of truth, has real impact. It's real consequences. This stuff doesn't stay in classrooms. It's, It's not a sterile environment. It gets carried into pulpits where it will ruin the hearers. It undermines the authority of the Word of God. It casts doubt on whether we can truly know what God has said. What does it do to the people in my church if they hear me say, I would have never understood the prodigal son if I hadn't run into someone from Japan? Because I'm telling you, there's not too many Japanese in East Texas. And I'm not against that. I'm simply saying that East Texas is not a multicultural, ethnically diverse community. Can they not know the Bible? This is an attack on the perspicuity of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Everything we have ever believed as conservative evangelicals about the Word of God, this is an assault on it. If the method of biblical interpretation shifts to include a form of standpoint epistemology, the objective truth of the original author will become fluid. It'll function like a slave to the agenda of the woke movement. Now I can hear the voices of SBC leaders even now. But we've all signed the BFM 2000. We're all inerrantists. We believe that the Bible is God's Word and that He has spoken. And I would say to you, you believe that God has spoken? You do well. The demons also believe. When Satan tempted Eve, he didn't question whether God had spoken. He simply questioned her ability to truly understand what He said. Hath God said, and he puts his spin on it. From his positionality, the pit of hell. His concern wasn't God's words as they actually were, but using them to accomplish his purpose. Like Satan in the garden, woke hermeneutics undermines the very authority of the Word of God. I don't say that lightly. I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this. I'm passionate about this because I grew up in the 70's in a Southern Baptist Church. My pastor had been trained in the era of, S- era of SBC liberalism in the seminaries. His view on the Bible was anything but Orthodox. I remember sitting and hearing him preach from Mark 5 in the story of Jesus' encounter with the demoniac. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus encounters this young man, asks him what his name is. He says, My name is Legion, which means one of many. Now the text is crystal clear. It tells us that he was demonically possessed. It tells us that there were many demons that were possessing this young man. But let me tell you what was the story at this revival meeting. The story was told that this young man was oppressed by the corporate pig farmers. I'm serious. This is not a. am not even putting words in his mouth. So see, this, this junk's been around for a long time. It's just been repackaged. And he said he was oppressed by the corporate pig farmers. I remember where I was sitting. I remember my mom sitting to the left of me. I remember I was on the very end of the row. I remember seeing him preach this sermon as clear as day. And the words they he said, they've ever rung in my ears. As God is my witness in this. And he said the corporate pig farmers were pressing this young man, and Jesus asked him what his name was, and he said his name was Legion. And he said the reason he said that is one of many is because they had so oppressed this young man. He had been so, and I don't think he used the word marginalized at that point, but so oppressed him, but it's a marginalization that he, he, he didn't even consider himself, he didn't even know his name anymore. He just considered himself one of many among the crowd. But Jesus... He was so angry with those corporate pig farmers that he drove their pigs into the water so that they drowned. That was the story. Where did this pastor graduate from? Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Why would we want to return to the same low view of the Scriptures. So claim you love inerrancy, claim you signed the BFM 2000, that's great. I praise God I signed it too. I say a little something more. The Scripture is sufficient, the Scripture can be trusted, God is spoken, and we dare not put words into His mouth. We are not ventriloquists as preachers. We are news reporters. Listen again to the words of Paul. Remind them of these things. Solemnly charge them in the presence of God to not wrangle about words, worldly words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman, unashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoiding worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. My friends, the language of woke hermeneutics, the worldly chatter of standpoint epistemology is spreading like gangrene in our seminaries and among evangelicals. We are called to rightly handle the word of truth, to stand in our pulpits and say, thus says the Lord. And Paul commanded Timothy to accurately handle the word of truth. That word literally means cut it straight. You will never cut the Word of God straight with the crooked tool of standpoint epistemology. How can we ever say, thus says the Lord, if we aren't quite certain that we actually know what He said? Paul is telling Timothy, people need to know God's Word. He goes on in the book, to be able to live godly in the world. That's what's at stake souls are at stake, lives are at stake, the testimony of God is at stake, the glory of God is at stake. If it's necessary for us to have God's Word to be able to live in this world, then we must believe that God must speak. And if God has spoken, we should be confident that He's given a reliable means by which we can know exactly what He said. That's what we possess, brothers and sisters, in the Scriptures. This conviction should fuel our desire to let our people hear the voice of God and not the voice of the preacher. The voice of God must not be replaced with the voice of someone else's perspective, whether it be mine or it be yours. And the only way we can truly be sure people are hearing God's voice and not ours is to handle God's truth with the kind of care that gives us confidence that what we're Saying is actually what He has said. And this demands biblical exposition. It demands a proper historical grammatical hermeneutic. God's point must be our point, or you and I will answer to that holy God one day for putting words into His mouth that He never said. And He will care less what documents you signed, what tweets you hid behind. He will care only about how you handled His Word and therefore, Paul told Timothy, that judgment day is coming and you will stand. Therefore, preach the Word. And you will never arrive at the destination of objective truth if you set yourself out or your students on the road of subjectivity. May God help us to accurately handle the word of truth, to drive this kind of thinking out of our seminaries, out of our pulpits, and avoid the worldly and empty chatter of woke hermeneutics that is ruining hearers, ruining uh, preachers, and spreading like gangrene.